I'm Afshin Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. What to make of last week's NATO summit in Lithuania, a nation on the border with Russia, which has a no-limits partnership with China? Well, perhaps today's 61st anniversary of the so-called small-boy nuclear weapons test northwest of Las Vegas might be instructive. With me now from Washington, D.C., is someone who has said unless the U.S. prepares to win a nuclear war, it risks losing one. Former Deputy Undersecretary of the U.S. Navy, Dr. Seth Cropsey, President of Yorktown in Institute joins me now. Thank you so much, Seth, for uh, coming on. I better just start off then on uh, uh, Vilnius last uh, week. I don't know whether some people thought Zelensky was acting, acting up. I don't know whether anyone thought that NATO was going to admit Ukraine in the middle of a war and whether he was, in fact, just uh, acting and whether even NATO membership is that important, given that, uh, you know, presumably the US would come to the aid of Japan if it was bombed. The NATO members uh, provided Russia with an incentive to fight on by failing to agree on how and under what circumstances and most important when Ukraine would be admitted to NATO. So that means that the signal sent to Putin is that uh, Western resolve is uh, cracking, and that uh, his objective can be to outlast the resolve of the Atlantic Alliance and win in Ukraine. I mean, you're it, an expert. You're an expert in information warfare because you, you, you know, you directed editorial policy uh, for Voice of America. That's uh, certainly not uh, how uh, it's being reported in NATO nation media. They're reporting, you know, like stenographers, uh, Stoltenberg saying, look how united it all is. Uh, the reporting on Biden, on Sunak from London, how wonderful everything is. Why do you think there's a mismatch between what you just said and, and that? Well, uh, <laughs> as somebody who has dealt, as you pointed out, with, uh, with information and how it's used on international scale, uh, it would be normal to expect what we saw uh, Stoltenberg saying, which is everything's okay. What else is he going to say? We're in disarray and we can't agree on a, on a forward course? Of course not. I don't know whether it will have caught uh, the State Department uh, by surprise that that will be the effect on Moscow as you see it. You began your 2017 book, Sea Blindness, with a quote from Mao saying that all imperialist states are weak because their appetite is large. How overextended do you think that uh, the United States is now that uh, Blinken's State Department, I mean, they've admitted that Zelensky has run out of ammunition? The political and military uh, fact in Ukraine is that the United States is, uh, does not have any troops on the ground. And that takes off the table um, the question of overextension. Uh, and it moves it, the overextension question, to the defense industrial base. That is, can the United States supply enough uh, weapons to Ukraine to defeat the Russians? Uh, I would not call that an, an example. That is not an example of overextension. That's a question of defense industrial policy um, and one that can be readily addressed, addressed since 
Um, we're talking about shells, artillery. Uh, we're not talking about rebuilding battle fleets, which takes years to do, um, or rebuilding air forces, which takes fewer years, but still time. So I don't see overextension here. Of course, some have remarked that the privatization of manufacture of ammunition and so forth in the U.S. is a is a uh, element here to be considered. I'm sure you'll say if they'd listened to you years ago, they would have had a military-industrial complex that would have uh, had no problems applying Zelensky. The, the defense industrial base as existed at the end of the Cold War would have had no problems. That's correct. But the assumption, um, stated and unstated, uh, beginning with the the drawing the curtain on the Cold War was that that would be the end. There would be, you know, history had ended and there would be no more great power conflict or emerging or states that emerged to compete with the United States, which turned out to be wrong. So there was consolidation among the major defense companies and there was uh, a continuing loss of secondary and tertiary uh, defense contractors uh, that that uh, do a lot of the work for the majors. That's a problem. And of course, the way the Blinken State Department has responded is by saying we'll supply cluster bombs, which uh, are banned by other NATO countries. Some element of losing the propaganda war there, because of course, in uh, NATO countries in Europe, the issue of cluster bombs has now become a major issue as to. Uh, should uh, the uh, Europeans be supporting uh, a war where cluster bombs are sent, let alone uh, what it means for uh, future generations of uh, Ukrainians? I know the excuse given was, well, if Russia uses them, then uh, we're going to clear it up anyway. So what difference does more cluster bombs make? Well, the United States has offered to, uh, to clear the cluster munitions uh, following the conflict. Uh, the dud rate is, in other words, the rate of unexploded munitions that can explode subsequently uh, is far down from what it was uh, during the Vietnam War. Uh, and yes, the, um, the use of cluster munitions is, uh, is an indication of um, Ukraine's needs and that the, the rate at which they're burning up um, Military hardware, yes. Yeah, I mean, I was talking about uh, the uh, information war rather than obviously the children of, in Ukraine that may be bombed in future years, regardless of how much more efficient it may be compared to Laos, Cambodia, and uh, Vietnam. But can well, you see how? Exactly why? This is exactly why. And this is the situation we find ourselves in because of Festina Lente policy of the current American administration, which is to make haste slowly, uh, as the Latin says. Um, and so the more that, uh, or the fewer uh, supplies that the Ukrainians need to counter the Russians, uh, the more problematic their, their, uh, their defense becomes. And this is all could have, this all could have been avoided. Uh, the, the reliance on cluster munitions um, could have been avoided had we supplied uh, Ukraine with the, with the weapons that they needed 
uh, and asked for a year ago and have been asking for since then. You think General Milley should should go, as you, as you uh, wrote before in uh, November last year? You said that uh, General Mark Milley, ch Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, should be replaced. Your exact words were, uh, his, uh, his strategic instincts are as dim as his political ambition is effulgent, which I'm told means radiant. I haven't changed my opinion since last year, no. Even though many more billions of dollars worth of weapons have been sent? The many billions of dollars uh, have not uh, accomplished what the stated policy objectives of the administration were. And um, that's the <laughs> that's what you end up with uh, when you uh, when you supply uh, a friendly country with less than what it needs to finish the job. I mean, we invite General Milley to defend himself, but uh, I could speculate and say that it's not him who's uh, the lead here. It is the Blinken State Department, and uh, policy is being made uh, outside of the Pentagon. Well, uh, General Milley has made his opinions known in, um, in all sorts of fora around, uh, around Washington and around the country and outside the United States. I think it's pretty clear what his opinion is. What, he wants peace talks now? I think he sees this as a um, as wasted effort. And you have no, no sympathy with that at all? Because in uh, the polls, ahead of next year's uh, US general election, of course, Donald Trump riding high with opinions that are, get people to talk, stop the fighting, stop the supply of weapons. This war could be over tomorrow, I think, is what uh, something of the like that Trump said. There's been no national discussion of this. Uh, President Biden has not, has yet to go on television or to explain what the stakes are in Ukraine. Uh, that leaves open ground for uh, traditional American isolationists. Uh, and uh, if Trump is not a traditional American isolationist, he's not anything. Well, so was FDR before uh, before things uh, got ahead of themselves, some might say. Uh, you've been campaigning. Yes, but FDR, but FDR uh, realized what was going on in Europe and spent, you know, the better part of his second administration preparing the country for a war. Well, you've been campaign, and uh, as you said, they they didn't listen to you uh, as they might have uh, as regards preparing for another war. You've been campaigning for a reappraisal of U.S. military needs for for years. Is it too late now? Now that China has declared a no limits partnership with Russia, I don't think it's too late. Um, I don't see any signs of that. Uh, the the uh, sensible policy would apply the lessons of Ukraine to Taiwan, uh, which is to say, instead of waiting until there's an attack, trying to deter one by uh, giving the Taiwanese what they need in order to defend themselves now, not at the point that uh, one sees amphibious ships gathering in, uh, in southern uh, Chinese uh, naval ports.
So you're against the Kissinger doctrine. I mean, Kissinger was pranked, actually, recently, where he admitted he didn't blame Ukraine for the Nord Stream. I don't know whether that means he believes Cy Hirsch about the Nord Stream attacks, that they were a Biden administration uh, terror attack. You don't see that Kissinger's dictum that you do not fight Russia and China at the same time as true? I think it's wise to try to avoid fighting anybody. <clears throat> of course. Um, and uh, even wiser or more imperative to avoid having to fight uh, on two fronts at the same time. Uh, who can disagree with that? Dr. Seth Cropsey, I'll stop you there. More from the former Deputy Undersecretary of the U.S. Navy and the current President of the Yorktown Institute after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Dr. Seth Cropsey, President of Yorktown Institute and former Deputy Undersecretary of the U.S. Navy. So, uh, Seth, you were saying that uh, it's not good to fight on two fronts, Beijing and Moscow, clearly. We had uh, Sergei Karaganov, a Russia advisor, uh, on the program recently. Uh, he was clear, said Moscow should teach Washington about deterrence by using tactical nuclear weapons. I know you're on the record in the Murdoch Wall Street Journal for saying that the U.S. should show it can win a nuclear war. Do you think he was reflecting your article, or do you think... Uh, do you think there are people in the Biden administration, let alone in the Putin administration, who believe that some sort of limited nuclear war is feasible and is the only rational option as billions of dollars of weapons are poured in and Ukraine, the, the red line from Russia that Ukraine shouldn't join NATO has been uh, crossed uh, in a way in Vilnius? Well, I mean, I, I'm sure that you've noticed the same thing which most of the rest of the world has noticed as well, which is that every time there's a either discussion of or a delivery of uh, artillery, uh, missiles, shells, uh, the airplanes, tanks, uh, infantry fighting vehicles, that Putin threatens uh, waves the nuclear well, he would deny that. He always says, no, that's off the table. But there are other people uh, within uh, Russian society who say it, yes. Well, he said it on several occasions, that this raises dark, the darkest questions about nuclearization of the war and that uh, we have tactical weapons that can deal with this and the West has to be careful because they need to tread carefully and so on and so forth. But it hasn't happened. Uh, in fact, what we see is that there are two red lines here um, in, in this war, and they've been observed um, pretty well since the beginning, and that is that the Ukrainians, by and large, do not attack into Russia. Uh, well, they did, into yes. Bogorod and... Uh... And, of course, Russia considered Donetsk part of Russia now, no, let alone Crimea and the Kerch Bridge. I said, by and large, um, Moscow. And the other, and the other one is that the Russians don't attack the uh, delivery of Western uh, military equipment into Ukraine, and that's held. Those have held more or less um, solidly since the beginning of the war, 
And so it hasn't gone nuclear. Uh, I think. But I'm not sure that's a good argument, is it? That because it hasn't gone nuclear yet, we can proceed uh, this the course of this war as it has been being fought this past, uh, well, the Russians would say since 2014 and uh, NATO would say since uh, February last year. Surely that's not a good argument, is it? No, I think it's a good argument that, uh, that uh, based on what we've seen so far, there's no reason to expect anything different in the future. And also, I think that Putin understands what the consequences of using a, a tactical nuclear weapon would be. First of all, there aren't good targets for it, uh, for a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine because they're not masked in typical World War II fashion. Their forces are not. And second of all, it would bring NATO together in a way that it has not been brought together. Well, you just said, you said it would bring NATO together. And I should say a tactical targets that have been discussed are London, the Ministry of Defense in London, for instance, because there are 50 uh, special forces troops in Ukraine, according to the Jack Texera leaks even. The, surely the uh, point is not that NATO would be stronger together. It was the United States that would presumably say, look, we've got to do some kind of talking here uh, while Europe would be powerless to act in any case. The last point I was going to make was that the consequences of a Russian use of nuclear, of a tactical nuclear weapon, um, are consequences that Putin doesn't want to face. Like what? And will not face. And will, like what? Now, there are all sorts of options. I mean, uh, for example, his Pacific fleet could go away. Interesting. You've been writing, sorry to interrupt, you've been writing about that. You favor attacks on uh, Russian infrastructure, Black Sea ports, oil, rail bases. You've also mentioned Syria and the, uh, the ports at Latakia. Do you think Ukraine uh, should extend the war to those bases? In, no, I don't in the think East? Ukraine should extend the war. My, my point only is that uh, the consequence for Putin of using a tactical nuclear weapon is that a lot of uh, things that he values would be at risk. I mean, surely that is completely against at the idea by, of deterrence by, theory, is it? At risk by conventional means. At risk by conventional means. Right. And, and that's certainly what uh, Sergei Karaganov was writing about and saying the response would not be necessarily nuclear, but it would teach the world about deterrence again. I don't, I don't think it would be. But... Uh, but Non-nuclear does not mean uh, does not give you a free pass. There's a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of damage that can be done with conventional weapons, and Putin knows that he's not a fool. Do you think that Trump is uh, not only getting uh, uh, a lot of support in the United States for ending this war in another way, uh, let alone the, the billions being sent over? is that he is uh, making hay out of the fact that Biden's uh, team, uh, the Pentagon's Lloyd Austin hails from Raytheon, Blinken and Michelle Florney come from WestExec, the Defense Contractor Consultancy, Avril Haines, Director of National Intelligence, uh, is from there, Sullivan has links to Taiwan. It, it goes into the narrative of the Trump narrative, which is this, is this is the swamp here that needs to be drained. They're all making future money out of this uh, policy that they're pursuing in Ukraine when, when peace should actually be pursued rather than, rather than future personal money, I suppose. 
off the uh, dead bodies of Ukrainian men, women, and children. Yeah, I, I, I would be very surprised if uh, the people who, uh, who, if Trump supporters are aware of the connections that you've just mentioned, I don't <laughs> think they are. Well, that's the working classes of America, I would say. I mean, you were at the Hudson Institute. Did you ever feel that there was that... Uh, I mean, obviously, there's no direct pressure, but the way you uh, uh, write and think about conflict is influenced by the fact that, say, Raytheon, Northrop, Lockheed, Boeing, Chevron and Exxon are funding the Hudson Institute. I know now... I don't know who funds uh, uh, Yorktown, but do you see that these conflicts of interest exist when it comes to forging a strategy to benefit the United States? For all the companies, uh, think tanks, individuals who uh, are writing on international relations, on foreign policy, on national security, uh, I think they... they the central problem is uh, whether their views are influenced by um, by the particular companies that, uh, that that contribute to their think tanks. Um, Hudson, for example, um, has a large and highly supportive uh, board of trustees. Um, and they are uh, extremely important in. Uh, in sustaining the uh, the institute, um, and as for uh, whatever influence the defense contractors have, uh, I don't see it. Um, what I see is that there's a confluence of interest uh, between people who are between analysts, experts, uh, former government officials who have a certain policy position, and uh corporations that that share that policy interest and if an individual goes outside of that then um i think there's a problem but i don't i don't i don't see evidence of that interesting to hear what the what the problems uh, would uh, be arguably um if well, uh... the problem would be the problem would be if let's say a uh, the manufacturer of a, of a piece of uh uh defense hardware were to offer a think tank for as as an example uh sponsorship in exchange for uh support about uh this particular piece of equipment and the uh neither the the this imaginary think tank or imaginary uh, expert for it didn't think that it that that piece of equipment was particularly valuable or useful or applicable. Um, okay, well we, we don't have time to talk about the F thirty five yet uh, here and uh, that would be a that, and that would be a you know that that's I, great. I was making trust. no uh, allegations there, I should say, against those defense companies, but obviously actually it's the Raytheon Patriot missile that has been talked about in the Ukraine conflict. I, I also got to ask you just finally about the uh, uh, relative sanctions immunity of countries since the Ukraine conflict has started, in that Russia is uh, uh, trading with the global south, everyone's talking about BRICS in the rest of the world, outside the European Union, Britain and the United States, the war is being reported on very differently. But uh, having said that, even there, 
in the capitals of the Global South, they recognize a certain immunity of, in NATO. Why have you said there was a growing fissure in NATO and that NATO is more brittle than ever? Why, why do you see it that way when uh, every day we're told on uh, NATO nation media that the opposite is the case? Well, uh, Germany has been reluctant. They've been dragged into it, kicking and screaming. They sent tanks. Uh, First time since the Second World War. Their political divisions, well, yes, that's right. That and they're going into recession. <laughs> right. But the fact is that the Germans have been politically divided over support for Ukraine. And Macron has been um, on his uh, idea of uh, European leadership, of um, European military leadership in Europe. Uh, although there's no foreign secretary there to uh, to direct it. Um, so they've been, uh, and they also have a greater economic interest uh, in many cases uh, to maintain ties with Russia, especially Germany. So, and that is uh, countered by the Eastern, uh, or what Don Rumsfeld called the New Europe, the Eastern part of, of Europe, uh, which has direct um, experience with what living with under Russia's thumb is like. So that's a, you know, that's a, that's a division. Do you expect this war to end because of war fatigue in Western Europe? We saw civil, uh, civil disobedience, civil strife across uh, the whole of France, actually. And uh, regardless of what Macron is uh, switching one day to the other on Ukraine, uh, also in Switzerland, in Holland, do you see that uh, the economic uh, catastrophe approaching in Europe may decide how long this war is going to go and before the inevitable uh, Russia-US summit that uh, divides uh, the uh, country of Ukraine? I can't answer that question because it's really, um, it's really hard to... Uh... It's really hard to stare into to, to look into the future. Uh, I, I I can tell you this that if Western resolve breaks, um, that will encourage an end to the war. If the United States administration changes and Trump becomes president, that will end the war. Um, if Americans uh, don't vote for Trump, and if Biden becomes is is uh, returned to the presidency, uh, and if he makes a, a, a more concerted attempt to explain what the stakes are here, not only in Ukraine and Russia, but for the rest of the world, of losing Ukraine to the Russians, then I think things will go well. But just briefly, either way, the war on China begins then. I think that the perception that the West has has cracked on uh, on Ukraine, leading to a, a Ukrainian defeat, uh, leads directly to a war in in the Far East, in the West Pacific. Yes, Dr. Seth Cropsey, thank you. Thank you, Jim. That's it for the show. We'll be back on Saturday with a brand new episode. But until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media. If it's not censored in your country, then head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com, to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday.